0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll learn about James Herman Banning. He was one of the first black men to fly across the continental United States along with his co-pilot. He was also the first black man to receive an official pilot's license in the U.S., and he spent a decade of his life in Ames, Iowa his story later on. But first, Jeff Wilson has been in a lot of tight spots, literally and figuratively. He's crawled into the dens of black bears during the hibernation season. He has wrestled with disgruntled trumpeter swans. He spent 30 plus years working as a wildlife technician with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and he has gathered his best stories and put them together in the book Wrong Tree, Adventures in Wildlife Biology. Jeff's wife, Terry Dalton, is an environmental educator and artist who illustrated the book. The two of them will be at the Springville Public Library on November 4th, Hartman Reserve Nature Center in Cedar Falls on November 5th, and Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on November 6th. And Terry is going to join us in a few minutes, but Jeff is on the line with me right now. Hello, Jeff.
2: Hello, Charity. Um, We're thrilled to be on, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, We love to talk about Wrong Tree, and we are looking forward to bringing our book to Iowa.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about Iowa, because, Jeff, you did grow up on a farm near Springville. And even early on, you were pretty infatuated with wildlife. Tell me a little bit about growing up.
2: Well, um, it it was in the 60s, uh, basically, and I just had a wonderful childhood. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better childhood. Uh, We worked hard, of course. Mom and dad both worked on the farm. And uh, But, you know, us kids, there's my, I have two siblings, uh, a sister and a brother. We, um, you know, we, we baled hay, we rode horses, we roamed the creeks, and we, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, we built um, tree houses in the trees. We just had a wonderful upbringing. <clears throat> and I think uh, that's an important part of the book because it, it's the part of the book I call my creek-roaming days. It's where I really fell in love with, uh, with wildlife, And um, uh, one of the stories I like to point out uh, um, in those early days is, uh, you know, we lived, both mom and dad worked on the farm, so we didn't go to town all that often, but a lot of people would come and visit us. And, uh, you know, we'd have the encyclopedia salesman, the feed corn salesman, um, the poor brush brush man, the Amway dealer. And one day my um, mother and I are sitting at the table and all of a sudden, we heard a banging on the door, and the door flies open, and in runs the fuller brush man. And he looks at us, he slams the door, leans against it, and he looks at us, and he says, get a gun quick. There's a rabid fox out in the yard, and it almost got me. And <clears throat> I, we went to the window and looked out, and sure enough, there was a fox standing in the yard. And I looked at the fuller brush man, and I said, don't worry, I know what to do. And I threw the door open, ran out and leaped off the porch. And I ran in a kind of a circle in the yard. And as I'm coming around, the fox saw me and he took off after me. And, you know, in those days, a rabid fox meant rabies. And we did have vaccinations for dogs. But, um, you know, there was no cure for people. If, if you got bitten by a, uh, a rabid fox and it, it, it would show up once in a while in you know, skunks and raccoons and fox. Uh, It was either a series of shots to the stomach, or it was the end of your life, I guess. Anyway, as I'm making that circle, the fox caught up to me, and then I tripped and fell, and the fox leaped onto my chest, and I threw my arms around the fox, and I kind of rocked back and forth, and then I carefully sat up, uh, held the fox in my arms, and walked over to the porch to show the salesman my pet fox, Zorro who I'd trained to play that game with me. So I guess the point is, um, I had, in those days, I had all these pet pets. I had pet, a pet descended skunk. I had read a book uh, by Sterling North called Rascal. And I had a, um, uh, a pet raccoon after that. And so part of that upbringing and part of the uh, wildlife uh, abundance we had back then in, in the soil bank days, I think that's where I really fell in love and, and directed my life to a, um, a, a career in conservation.
1: So, of course, it is illegal to keep a wild animal as a pet, and, and it has been now for some time. So those opportunities that you had with a child, those are not opportunities that, that kids have these days. Although kids can go outside, Jeff, <laughs> they, they can have a lot of wonderful adventures. But I hear you saying that you feel like there's been a real disconnect.
2: Um, well, no. I guess one thing I want to point out in the book is that uh, you're right, of course. And, and that's, uh, that's for the betterment of, of wildlife, I think, that we don't have wildlife as, as pets. And uh, those do- days are over. But I, I wrote the book um, to uh, for a number of reasons. But one is to, to entertain, of course, with anecdotal stories. But I also wanted to educate and inspire. And so... I want your listeners to know that uh, if anybody that is considering a career in in resource management of any kind, you don't have to grow up on an Isle farm by any means. Um, And uh, in my case, uh, it it worked out well, but um, we need good people in in this field, and um, uh, the days of of wild pets are over for sure, and that's, that's good.
1: Uh, Jeff, when it came time for, for you to choose a career, um, doing something with wildlife seemed to make a lot of sense to you. Did you have a real vision for what you wanted to do?
2: Um, well, you know, I uh, I think my upbringing had a lot to do with it. But um, I also, my first job actually was with Lynn County Conservation Board at Massel's Bridge Recreation Area. And I worked there for the Forestry and Game Division. And I did that while I was t- attending Kirkwood College in Cedar Rapids. So, um, uh, you know, at that point, I kind of got an in. And then I later went and finished my career in, or my uh, education in uh, Northern Wisconsin, where I went to a, a small college up on uh, the edge of the shores of Lake Superior called Northern College. and. Um, then I, you know, from there, from my Iowa connections with Linn County Conservation Board, I got a job in, in at a, the Brule Forest, and I, and from then on, I got a permanent job with Wildlife up here, and I kind of left Iowa at that point, and and the bulk of my career, the uh, over thirty years, was spent in northern Wisconsin, but I still attribute that my start was in Iowa. I fell in love with wildlife in Iowa, and interestingly, the book has all kinds of Iowa connections that I didn't realize till I finally uh, finished writing it. And my publisher, Cornerstone Press at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, they pointed out, Jeff, you've got to get down to Iowa because this is an Iowa story too.
1: Well, I I do want to talk about this time in Wisconsin, though, as well. There are so um, so many things about the environment and conservation in the Midwest that we all share. And one of those things is that many different species were either eliminated or nearly eliminated from the states that we live in and have been reintroduced. You've been part of a lot of those reintroductions over time. And- I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of wildlife management in the time that you've been involved. I mean, early on and, and early in the book, you're sharing a lot of stories about uh, really wildlife nuisance calls, which, which you had to deal with quite a lot early on. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Well, in, for about 15 years of my career, I handled two different counties. Iron and in Ashland County, Wisconsin, up, up here on the shores of Lake Superior. And um, as you said, I had about 80 different things to do in my job description, but one of those was the uh, wildlife damage control and abatement. And what that kind of uh, uh, involved was if a beaver was flooding a town road or a logging operation, or if a bear was uh, devastating a farmer's cornfield, or if a raccoon was in your attic or a skunk in your basement, uh, within a day or so, my phone rang. So that did um, that 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 did um, uh, create a few dramatic experiences, and uh, those fifteen years of animal control damage control, uh, they are quite a few of the stories. You're right. And another thing I did was um, throughout my career, I had a number of graduate students that I worked with. I either supplied them bears uh, for their research projects or loons, and uh, I worked with eagles and. Of course, Osprey as well. But um, you're right. Uh, I did have uh, a number of uh, a number of the stories that are quite dramatic in the book involved um, wild animals. And I think back to my Iowa upbringing, just living on a farm and handling domestic animals, it gave me a little insight about how to uh, deal with wild animals. But, uh, of course, everything's unpredictable. And so some of these stories get a little dramatic in the fact that... Um, things don't always turn out the way you thought they would.
1: Well, and Jeff, I get the impression that especially early on in your career, you were a man of action. You didn't always necessarily fully think through the consequences of what that action might be. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
2: Uh, I think that is probably fair. And, you know, but you got to remember this. Um, in 30 years of, of research or of, of, you know, wildlife management, you do have a bad day once in a while and and you do have things that don't go quite the way you want them to go. And, uh, and that I think makes for some of the stories, that's for sure. Um, And we had a lot of fun writing the book in that sense, but um, yeah, um, you're right. There, there are some pretty dramatic ones and, you know, back to the Iowa connection, um, you know, there's a a one story entitled a Girl Scout Troop 237 they're from Mount Pleasant, Iowa. That involves a marauding bear out on this island in Lake Superior. And, uh, you know, that, that story has a lot of drama in it as well. But, um, and then, of course, um, hacking ospreys to Iowa. When you reintroduce ospreys down there, we helped, we aided you on that. And I met a lot of Iowa friends uh, uh, through that program. And uh, that was a, uh, obviously an interest, interesting story in the book as well.
1: Well, Jeff, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm talking with Jeff Wilson. He's the author of Wrong Tree, Adventures in Wildlife Biology. And he spent 30 plus years working as a wildlife technician in the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. He grew up in Iowa and he'll be coming to Iowa as part of his book tour. His wife, Terry Dalton, is an environmental educator and artist who illustrated the book. They're both going on tour, and Terry will join us in the conversation in a few minutes as well. The two of them will be at Springville Public Library on November 4th, Hartman Reserve, Nature Center, in Cedar Falls on November 5th, and Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on November 6th. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics. Treatment for varicose veins and spider veins. Also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of
1: Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we're going to learn about James Herman Banning. He was one of the first black men, along with his co-pilot, to fly an airplane across the United States. He also was the first black man to officially get a pilot's license in the U.S., and he spent a decade living in Ames, Iowa. We'll find out more. With me right now is Jeff Wilson. He is the author of Wrong Tree, Adventures in Wildlife Biology, and he spent 30 plus years working as a wildlife technician with the Wisconsin Department. Department. Department of Natural Resources, and he also grew up in the state of Iowa, has a lot of affection for his home state, and he'll be coming, along with his wife, Terry Dalton, an environmental educator and artist who illustrated the book, to the Springville Public Library on November 4th, Hartman Reserve Nature Center in Cedar Falls on November 5th, and Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on November 6th. And, uh, Jeff, before the break, we were talking about how uh, a lot of these stories uh, revolve around the fact that you are a man of action. You've gotten a lot of stuff done in your life. There have been a, a few close calls <laughs> because you've taken action. I I would love for you to tell us about um, removing a, a skunk from the basement of somebody who called in. Again, another one of those wildlife complaint calls that you got that you needed to do something about. And these were not the best circumstances for removing a skunk. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, that actually has an Iowa connection as well, because I think I alluded earlier to the fact I had a pet skunk. Its name was Flower. It was descended, however. But um, from, from having that skunk as a pet. I kind of knew how to handle skunks and like how to carry skunks. I knew the physiology of a skunk. But anyway, so what happens is it's a Friday. I'm just heading out with my girlfriend who's en route to visit, to meet me at the ranger station where I worked uh, for a weekend of um, music at a bluegrass festival uh, near here. And um, <clears throat> well, wouldn't you know it, I stop in to get my paycheck on a Friday uh, right before we're going to leave and there's a call, I've got a skunk in my basement. So the first thing I said was, well, no problem. Just open your walkout basement and let the skunk, and just just leave it open and the skunk will leave on its own if, if there's no food available. Well, the owner, the woman said, um, no, it's not a walkout basement. The kids had uh, hit a softball and broken a little hole in the corner of the glass of the basement window Skunk had stuck his head in probably and toppled in, and he was down inside the basement. Only exit was up the stairs, through the kitchen, out the living room. And so I explained to him, um, and I'm giving the short version of this, but I explained to him quickly that I could bring a trap over and show him how to bait, and I'll bait it up, it's a live catch trap, and how it was covered up with a, I had a canvas over it, so uh, it would be secluded, the skunk wouldn't spray, and wouldn't you know it, uh, when I got there, they were not at all pleased about me leaving the trap for them to monitor, for them to go down and remove um, with the skunk in it, should it be captured. And uh, so I kind of wrote it off and I thought, oh boy, I think I've just ruined my weekend. <clears throat> and um, because I, I, there's nobody else I'm going to talk into doing this for me. And it is... My responsibility in a sense so um, begrudgingly I went down the basement steps and I'm I set the live catch trap the, the box trap and uh, bait, it was all baited up and I rig it up open have the door open ready to go and I heard a little skimmish, a little bit of sound and I thought hmm well I had a flashlight with me so I took two slow careful giant steps from where I heard this sound and I peered straight down and here is the skunk between two garbage cans. <clears throat> and he's looking out at the trap and uh, not up at me. And I just flick the light on. I see him. I flick it back off. And then I remember what my neighbor, Don Yonda, back in Springville, had told me. <clears throat> he says, if you pick up a skunk by the tail, it can't spray you. And um, <clears throat> now I've later learned that that's not always 100%. But anyway, <laughs> um, I. Uh, I thought to myself, "Gosh, if I can make this move and sweep that hand down and grab that skunk, I have solved my problem. But I realized if I blow if I blow it, if, if, this, if I drop this skunk or touch the skunk and arouse the skunk,
1: yeah, you've got about three um, got more problems. Major,
2: right? <laughs> I've got some major problems here. Uh, and anyway um. I thought it through, I kind of envisioned it in my mind, and I had the chance, so I made the move, and sure enough, I, got, I, I, I caught that skunk's tail, I lifted it right up, it's bobbing its head, it's moving its legs, but the, what Don Yana had told me is it's gotta have its back legs planted in order to squeeze the sphincter muscle that shoots out that yellow fluid, um, that musk, which it can shoot for like 20 feet. But anyway, it worked. And up the stairs I went, um, kids scattered, the doors flew open, I says, clear the way, and out the door I went, I gave that skunk a nice, gentle, soft ball pitch, it bounced twice and scampered into the woods, and I jumped in my truck, and away I went. And I did have a wonderful evening, a uh, wonderful weekend at the Brewgrass Fest. Uh, when I got back, <clears throat> uh, the trap was neatly set by the porch, the burlap was folded and stacked on top of it. And as I looked over, there was a brand new shiny glass window replaced in that hole.
1: Oh, they fixed so, that yeah, window very quickly. That's one of the quickly. stories in
2: the book that, that does have an Iowa connection.
1: Well, so Jeff, uh, we're, we're going to run out of time here, but I, I do want to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, the the work that you did over the years really evolved over time. And uh, it was a lot fewer of these wildlife complaint calls and and a lot more of working with species that that really had been extirpated or disappeared from the state of Wisconsin. A lot of these species are species that had disappeared from Iowa as well. Um, So just give me kind of an overview. I mean, you've worked a lot on loon conservation, osprey reintroduction and conservation, trumpeter swans as well. Tell me a little bit about that work
2: um yeah i was in a perfectly good era i i I luckily was in an era where um non-game was finally getting recognized and uh we had a one or a number of success stories here in wisconsin where we reintroduced we got elk from michigan we got um fisher from minnesota we got american martin from minnesota we got peregrine falcons um as well and i can't remember where they came from um you know we Eliminated DDT from the environment to some degree. And so our, our uh, Osprey and our bald eagles uh, returned and, and, and became abundant. Um, and, you know, Iowa, uh, we, we might as well toot your horn down there in Iowa, too. Um, some of the people I worked with, Jamie Edwards and Ron Andrews with Iowa DNR, and a number of people, including Vern F- uh, Fish with um, your conservation boards down there. You know, you had a tremendous success story as well. You know, from what I've kept tabs on, uh, you've restored river otter. You got them from Louisiana. Um, you got our ospreys and Minnesota's ospreys, and they're now abundant. You, uh, we gave you trumpeter swans, and I think Minnesota gave you trumpeter swans as well. Now you have uh, abundance of those. You also have peregrine falcons in many of your cities, and your eagles have taken off. Um, it's, I think, worldwide renowned, uh, people watching your, your Decorah, Iowa eagle nest, and uh, so, uh, you know, you, I think uh, Iowa has made some tremendous progress as well. And we were really glad to help you with the trumpeter swans and the, and the osprey, simply because other states helped us. And, um, and you've made some incredible recovery. Um, and I'm just amazed, you know, your white-tailed deer herd has just really taken off. It was rare in the 60s for me to even see a white-tailed deer. And, of course, you have turkeys everywhere as well. So uh, both states, I, I think we were very fortunate to, me, to work in an era of which um, a lot of these animals, uh, there was finally recognition by the public, there was finally a budget to work on non-game, and, uh, and a lot of the states around us here in the Midwest have, have uh, capitalized on that and been very successful. And I'm, pr- I'm, I'm proud, and, and so should Iowa, um, for the work we've done.
1: I'm talking with Jeff Wilson. He's the author of Wrong Tree Adventures in Wildlife Biology. Jeff's wife, Terry Dalton, is an environmental educator and artist who illustrated the book. And Terry is also with us now. Hello, Terry. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here, Terry. And uh, I want to talk with both of you. And Terry, maybe you can tell us a a little bit. uh, One of the things that that Jeff shares in the book is uh, the work he put in building the cabin that the two of you live in
3: now, which is a pretty, pretty uh, remote retreat. Why don't you tell us about it, Terry? Well, you know, it's interesting. I kind of tell people if I had... um, met Jeff when he was building the cabin, we maybe wouldn't have ever ended up together because it was so much work and such a crazy idea. But um, the cabin's about a three mile boat ride from the nearest boat landing on a very fairly large Island in the middle of a uh, scenic waters area, which is owned by the state of Wisconsin. So we're off the grid with just a pitcher pump and some solar panels. And we live there, um, We have been living there over the last 25 years uh, full-time, and uh, depending on obligations, obviously during uh, spring and fall, there's some real times when it's hard to get there. But it's been part of our uh, adventure. I came along after the main cabin was built and helped with some of the rest, but a lot of the research projects and people we've connected to have also... Uh, stayed at the cabin or been based there because we live in such a great area to do wildlife research and, uh, it's, it's been uh, kind of a touchstone for many people. Absolutely. So even
1: though uh, Jeff has retired from his work with the DNR, it sounds like uh, you guys are kind of living a, a wilderness dream in a, a lot of ways. And, and Terry, you're an environmental educator. You are also an artist. You did beautiful artwork for this book, um, Scratchboard Artwork. Tell me a little bit about the, collaborative, or the collaboration between the two of you and bringing this together.
3: Well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. We think about a husband and wife working together. Of course, there's some times when you do a little arm wrestling, and I'd have an idea for an illustration. Jeff would say, Why are you doing that? And I'd say, Well, because I want to. Uh, but uh, I've illustrated a couple other books for other authors before. And I came across the idea of Scratchboard actually from an Iowa illustrator named Claudia McGeehee, who won the Sigurd Olson Nature Writing Award up at Northland College. Uh, for her her book um, northwood scale and i talked to claudia about using scratchboard because it gives you the ability to put quite a bit of detail in but i sort of wanted that old style woodcut look and it worked out really well for that um so it was really fun working with jeff on it on the book and coming up with ideas uh for the illustrations and uh it it gave me an opportunity to kind of Uh, revisit those old stories, ones where I was present and also ones where I wasn't um, and, and learn more about his adventures. So it's amazing after 20 plus years uh, of marriage, there's still sometimes things you haven't heard. Well, and and Jeff, one
1: of my favorite
3: things is that so many of your stories
1: ended with the line. And I never told anyone about that
2: because because Um, you just got
1: out of some, some scrapes there.
2: Uh, Yeah, there's a, there's a story or two that we were wondering if we should even tell, but uh, we we did, and they're all true. And, you know, one of the um, people that uh, promoted the book and and, uh, and their quotes on the back cover was my uh, second boss, John Olson. And his line is, I wouldn't have believed half the stories in this book if I hadn't been there myself. So uh, that does pertain to some of the stories. Um, and, you know, I tried to tell the stories, you know. When we live at the cabin, we get a lot of visitors and we've had a lot of researchers there working on merlin falcons and eagles and loons and ospreys. And um, I try to tell the stories just um, like I'm sitting around the campfire, so to speak. And I also try to take the reader with me, um, like I want them to go, I I take them up that eagle nest when I'm banning eagles. I take them down in the bear den when I'm uh, replacing a a radio collar uh, and... Uh, in the winter with the graduate students. Um, I take them on the road when I'm trapping beaver. um, And, uh, hey, uh, Terry and I take that reader, we try to take the reader with us when we're out in the moonlight all night long banding loons. So, um, and we try to make that connection. Uh, You know, common loons, um, uh, they're a beautiful bird up here, they're a non-game bird, but very few people know until you read the book that we actually used common loons uh by uh, in a toxicology study uh, which eventually set helped set uh, mercury emission standards for coal-fired power plants throughout the midwest so i think a lot of the part of the book is to educate the public about what wildlife biologists and technicians actually do and how our work is important to set quotas and population models for wildlife and how some of it can be used in unique ways like the loon was uh, as a toxicology study to uh, monitor human health through mercury emissions, so that's part of the book. I, I, I was, I really try to emphasize on to teach people, you know, to educate people on how and why we conduct wildlife research, and um, and the goal of the book. If it, if, uh, what what would really thrill me is to someday have some student or some person say, I read your book and I decided to pursue a career in resource management or in wildlife management. I want to inspire with the book, and that's why I went all out and told it all, I guess.
1: <laughs> Shared even those stories that you had kept kept hidden for so long. Um, we only have a, about a minute left, Jeff, and one of the things that you write about in the end of the book is the fact that in recent decades, in recent years, a lot of environmental protection has been rolled back in the state of Wisconsin. So we've seen, you know, you write about some incredible success stories, like the Osprey, like the Trumpeter Swans, like the Loons, and yet in this time of, of I guess rediscovered abundance, do you feel like we're forgetting how fragile our ecosystems can be?
2: Well I think the point is, um even though I was in this wonderful era of success, um, the job's not over. And that's why we need new people. Um we have PIFA's prob- uh, here in Wisconsin. We have CWD, which we probably and you do now too, which you probably got from our deer uh, when they slammed across wasting in Mississippi
1: disease.
2: Yeah, uh, chronic wasting disease. Thank you. And um, we've got climate change problems coming. Um, the work is not over. We have groundwater um, issues here in Wisconsin, just like Iowa has. Uh, tremendous loss of wetlands, but you know we're 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 pecking away at it. You know we're restoring a lot of we're doing projects to restore things and um but i guess um uh, your point is well taken that the the battle is not over uh we need strong conservation organizations we need good people working for them and uh, we need to recognize that our environment is um is everything and um i think that's what the last part of the book was focused on you're right how um the, the work's not over. It's a big job, and uh, we got to keep at it.
1: Jeff Wilson, thank you so much. Jeff Wilson is the author of Wrong Tree, Adventures in Wildlife Biology. The book is also illustrated by his wife, Terry Dalton, who's an artist and an environmental educator. The two of them will be at the Springville Public Library on November 4th, Hartman Reserve Nature Center in Cedar Falls on November 5th, and Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on November 6th. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Now, a little bit of Iowa history you may not be familiar with. James Herman Banning was one of the first black men to fly an airplane across the country. It was October 9th, 1932, when Banning and his co-pilot Thomas Cox Allen landed in Long Island, New York. Banning was also the first black man to officially get a pilot's license in the U.S., and he spent a decade of his life living in Ames, Iowa. He learned to fly in Des Moines. He even flew a plane called the Miss Ames. In 2022, the Ames Municipal Airport was renamed in his honor, and last year, a play on Golden Wings, The Greatest Story Never Told, was performed. Here's a moment from the play. Uh, my
2: name is James Herman Banning. I'm a pilot, first Negro pilot to get his license in the United States. Before it's all said and done, I want to be the first Negro to make the trip from California all the way to New York City.
0: <laughs> now, uh, where were we? Uh, we? Well, you were just about to tell me what you was gonna say before we got to okay, the Okay, I'm gonna we'll start t- from
2: the top. My name is James Herman Banning. I'm a pilot, the first Negro to get his pilot's license in the United States. Mm. Now, I know what you're asking yourself: How does a Negro man get a pilot's license in 1927? shoot it's 1932 and I'm telling you you have to be very careful you have to fly better than the best you have to be the best because there's so many people who believe that just because you're a negro you can't
0: fly shoot I can fly
1: On Banning's birthday, November 5th, the Ames Public Library and the Ames Historical Museum will be showing a recording of that play on Golden Wings, The Greatest Story Never Told. Here to tell us some of that story, though, is Alex Pfeiffer. He is Exhibits Manager with Ames History Museum. Hello, Alex.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here. And let's go back to the beginning. I mean, James Herman Banning was born in 1900. Uh, tell me a little bit of, about his upbringing and, and what brought him to Ames.
0: Yeah, actually, he was born 1899. I know it. you kind of see both of those numbers around, but we uh, got his official Iowa State registration card, which he filled out, and it, it has 1899 as his birthday. So I know I think nice. we've even had that a little, you know, it's kind of going around there. but. Yeah. You know, that era where, you know, we're just a few years from the Wright brothers at that point. So he's he's kind of coming of age at this era where his, you know, probably his natural curiosity as a child. You're starting to hear about these airplanes, you know, and probably seeing some from a far distance and just really getting inspired by 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 these great machines that are just kind of taking over the country slowly.
1: But he was a farm boy, right?
0: Yeah, he grew up. His parents were uh, sharecroppers out in Oklahoma. And so pretty, you know, pretty basic upbringing upbringing there. Um, But he did manage to, uh, you know, pass high school, and that's what brought him to Ames was to continue on and go to college, which um, he came here right shortly after high school for the 1920 school year and was studying electrical engineering, but only went to school for just one year before he dropped out, unfortunately.
1: Although he clearly had a, a real aptitude for mechanics and uh, <laughs> obviously got pretty excited about aviation as well. But he, he actually ran a business in Ames, right?
0: Yeah, he had the, the James H or J.H. Banning Auto Repair Shops, who should say his So he's, his first name is James, but he went by Herman. So a lot of times you'll see it J. Herman Banning. Um, yeah, he started that shop in Uh, 1922 after he was, after he got out of school at that period. And, you know, we got to think in our mind too, this kind of like automobiles and airplanes, they're kind of coming up at basically the same point, you know, they're, and also obviously they're using a lot of the same engines that are starting to get these gas engines that are getting developed that we've had around for a couple decades, but we're starting to, I'll put that in quotes, perfect at that point, (laughs) but kind of, they all kind of go hand in hand. So it's easy to see how he could start getting in the auto repair business and kind of get the idea of like, well, there's an engine in an airplane and it's got wings. Let's just see how fast we can go.
1: Do we know how he fell in love with flight?
0: I've seen a couple things through our research in there. Once I've seen a notion that he, he saw an airplane as a child, another one that in 1920, somewhere around the Ames area, likely Des Moines, that he Went to what they called an air circus back then, which we call it. We just kind of call it a stunt show today, (laughs) kind of a thing. Um, So there's a couple ideas of where he maybe maybe saw them, but but nothing official, unfortunately. We have very little that Banning wrote himself, since he died so young. That um, a lot of the sources are blurbs in the newspaper or what was written by his um, other black aviators at that same time that knew him. So it's pretty low on sources, unfortunately, to really pinpoint pinpoint some of that especially early life stuff like that. When he
1: decided that he wanted to become a pilot, there were not a lot of black people who were flying planes at that time. And he encountered a lot of challenges, even getting somebody who was willing to teach him. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, so he, he applied at schools in Chicago, Minneapolis, Kansas City, and St. Louis. And all of them he was denied because of the color of his skin. Um, you know, we this is the, the mid-20s, so... There's more pilots than there were ten years ago, kinda of in this post-World War One era. All these veterans that came back and, and learned how to fly during that period, some of them continued on and started their own, you know, bought their own airplanes, got airports, and started giving out lessons in kind of this weird period where, you know, as long as you were brave enough to get behind, you know, behind the rotor and stuff like that, you could basically go off on an airplane if you if you had the guts for it. But he found in Des Moines, um, one of those World War One Army aviators, retired uh, Lieutenant Raymond Fisher, that agreed to give him five months uh, of flying instructions. And so that's really how he got his start and was able to learn the basics, um, which led to him in 1926 becoming the first black man to obtain his pilot's license from the U.S. Department of Commerce.
1: And he was not in any way the first black pilot. He was the first black man to earn a pilot's license. I'm sure there were a number of other men who were flying, but hadn't been able oh, yeah. to get through all of that bureaucracy and and racism.
0: Definitely. Well, even women, one of the most famous pilots kind of in that pre-banning uh, era would be Bessie Coleman, who was... Uh, she was flying around in the teens long before they thought about even giving licenses away and and was a stunt pilot and did all kinds of fun stuff. And so, yeah, she's one of probably one of the more famous ones, especially being a woman. Her story is, t- is told quite a bit. So pretty, pretty unofficial in those days, for sure.
1: So once Banning earned his pilot's license, he sort of joined uh, those air circuses, those air shows that we talked about earlier. Tell me a little bit about what he was doing.
0: Yeah, he got so in the while well, the period he's living in Ames here, he's he's flying. Doesn't own an airplane yet. Very common in that era for pe- people, usually more well-off people, to own airplanes and have no idea how to fly them. <laughs> and so a lot of times these guys would either kind of rent them or or just get use of these airplanes. Um, and actually, he so while he's running that shop, kind of a little predate on that, he his shop there was a fire at his auto shop, which caused him to close it in 1927 and. About a month later, we're not officially sure if he took, he thought he was going to get some insurance money through the newspaper, and the amount that he thought he was going to get is only a few hundred dollars more than what this Miss Airplane cost brand new. So we're not sure if it was officially a brand new airplane, but he went down to Des Moines and bought that fly-with-banning airplane and was able to, on his more on his own time, start doing this barnstorming, flying passengers, um, and then he got, he. I think he read it in a paper that um, these Black Flyers out in California were going to form the, the Bessie Coleman Aero Club to try to promote black aviation. And so he wrote them a letter, and they contacted him and were like, oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, we'd love to, if you want to get involved. Now, this is pretty, they're kind of formulating the group at this point, trying to figure out what they're doing. And it, at that point, when Banning said he was going to come out and do it, he was the most experienced pilot out of all of them with over 250 hours. But his pilot's license was expired at that point. So they even worked with him to try to get... His pilot's license up to date so they could keep flying and going around and doing these kind of, yeah, stunt shows, air circuses, you know, barnstorming, too, where they just land. And, you know, for 15 bucks, you could get up in the air for five or 10 minutes and we'll just keep giving rides all day kind of stuff.
1: So where did the idea to do this transcontinental flight in 1932 come from?
0: Well, there was uh, it was spurred by the possibility of a thousand dollar prize. And I haven't found this in writing whether they they saw that in a newspaper whether obviously he was hanging out with a lot of black aviators and this was a thousand dollar prize for the first black pilot to go coast to coast and when we say coast to coast it's not a non-stop flight it is very much you know going as far as the gas tank will take take you flying down and filling up again um so we're not sure exactly sure how he got how that where that thousand dollar prize notion came from. But it was enough to get people excited about it. And I think also just the the notoriety of doing something that honestly a lot of people in the country thought wasn't possible for for two black men to fly across the country and go that whole way.
1: So he partners with Thomas Allen and they start this flight. But they do not have what they need to get all the way across the country. This is the most amazing part of the story, I think. Tell me. I mean, they took off with only $25 between them. How did they plan to get to the other side of the country?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So he he gets linked up with Thomas Cox Allen. He actually was supposed to be partnered with another buddy of his. But Thomas Cox Allen came to him and said, hey, I'll raise all the gas money if you let me come along and be the mechanic. And Banning, uh, you know, not wanting to disappoint his buddy, but couldn't turn down the funding opportunity, said yes. Well, Thomas Cox Allen never really raised that money, unfortunately. They only had the 25 bucks. They left Los Angeles. This is 1932, by the way, um, in the Depression. So you got to keep that in mind also as they're going here. So money's pretty tight in places. Um, they modify an Alexander Eagle Rock biplane that I think had something like a 15-year-old engine in it. It's They say it's modified with spare parts. Um, Banning was quoted along the way saying, I know this motor is getting old, originally developed a hundred horsepower. I have reason to believe some of the horses are dead. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this pristine machine that they're trying to get across the country. You know, um, white aviators, white aviators at the time had a, had a lot more funding opportunities than some of the black aviators. They are really, like we said, putting this together with spare parts and trying to do it. So they leave with 25 bucks. I don't even think it gets them to Arizona without amount of money. They have a pocket watch and a suit they hawk to get a little bit more cash. Um, but they dubbed themselves the the flying Hobos because they were kind of raising money along the way. So they would they would stop in a town, and a lot of times they would they were taking a route that was kind of friendly to them. Places they'd stop in like Oklahoma, where Herman had connections, and places in I believe Missouri and Illinois where Thomas Cox Allen knew people. So they wanted to come in a place where they knew they'd hopefully get a warm reception, people that would support them along the way. But they right, not all communities were
1: welcoming to, to black men at that day and age. They could be in danger.
0: Definitely not, especially they were flying south of the Rockies, so kind of dipping in through that, you know, kind of Oklahoma area, a little bit more south than they probably felt comfortable with. Um, but they managed to, you know, get people to chip in, you know, whether it was giving them a few bucks, $5 for some gas or a place to stay or a meal, and they let everyone that supported them um, sign the wings of their airplane and they called it the gold book. So it was like they were going to go on the the whole journey with them all the way out to New York. So I'm sure for a lot of people, especially kids that they encountered on the way, it was probably a very inspirational story to see. You know, we're a few years off of Lindbergh and now here this black aviator comes to your town and, sh- and shows you what you're capable of.
1: Right. Well, they even did a little work for hire. They um, threw some leaflets supporting Democratic presidential candidate FDR out of the plane on their way.
0: Yeah, yeah they, they got a deal with someone that said they would uh, pay for their, their rest of their ride to New York. So this is in uh, in Pennsylvania. I forget the name of the town now. And so they'd pay for him to get to New York and then they they'd pay enough to get them back. Also, unfortunately, they're they're on their way back. Their plane broke down. So that never really happened. But, yeah, they had, I forget how many pounds of that. They were very happy to lose the weight to get a little bit better gas <laughs> mileage once they threw those down. But, yeah, hey, it must have worked because, you know, FDR won the election.
1: That's right. I'm sure that that is why. <laughs> um, so they landed October 9th, 1932. What kind of coverage did they get? What kind of reaction did they get?
0: Yeah, so they got a pretty warm welcome in there. So they arrived. It was 21 days from when they left. Um, but it was actually only 42 hours of flight, if you can imagine that, under yeah. two days of flight. Um, they get to New York city, they start making loops around the skyscraper and the statue of Liberty. I can only imagine, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if they had ever been to New York before, as far as her uh, banning, we know, it seems like he probably didn't get much beyond the Midwest. He was mostly out in the California Midwest area. So they get out there, the, you know, we got to think that the, the, the town really enjoyed it because the mayor, Jimmy Walker came and gave him the key to the city. So certainly it was, uh, news going around the town that these guys had made their journey and were coming. Um, and then that evening they went into Harlem, into the, the Cotton Club, and were able to hear performances by uh, Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway. So wow. what a great, I'm sure they had just a, a heck of a night, probably finally got to sleep in a comfortable place, maybe not in a you know pile of straw in somebody's barn or maybe even some nights in their airplane. Um, but just a, a wonderful journey they were able to have and actually kind of celebrate that. No They never got that thousand dollars. That's the thing. <laughs> wow.
1: And and Banning did not live for very much longer. He was killed only four months later. Tell me what happened.
0: Yeah, so um they had to leave their their plane in Pennsylvania and had to get back for some air shows and were actually gonna, you know, do the air shows to make some money. So they went they got back out to San Diego um and it's the, there's very little written about this part so it's it's been told in some different ways but i've seen some references in newspaper to say he was going there he was going to fly and the company that was going to, he was going to use their airplane because his was was stuck out in pennsylvania um they didn't think he was a capable pilot and so they did not allow him to fly in that and then we're not quite sure what happened the the talking there but somehow um an, another pilot a white navy uh aviation machinist volunteered to fly Banning over to so they're at a different airport and all the and all the people are at Camp Kearney so they'd be at the other airport and they would fly there and then come and land and people see the plane so they he offered to fly him over to just go check out the crowd and they fly by and this more less experienced pilot I think may possibly trying to show off for the you know the the world famous uh Banning now pulled into a steep climb the plane stalled, entered a tailspin, and fell to the ground in front of the crowd. And, and Banning was in the the passenger seat, which had no controls. So unfortunately, um, the newspaper said if Banning had been control, he was such a good pilot that there's no way that thing would have crashed. Especially his him surviving quite a few crashes and landing on fume Um trips of over right. the years so it's it's very unfortunate.
1: So this and this is a story that that in many ways was largely forgotten. The Ames connection was largely forgotten as well and it's been brought back to light and told the Ames City Council voted to rename the local airport the James Herman Banning Ames Municipal Airport in 2022. You're also working on a we only have about a minute left but you're also working on a, a permanent exhibition?
0: Yeah, we're going through a huge um, expansion the museum, and part of that's going to be a big permanent exhibit. And we have a great aviation uh, section where we're going to talk about the woman who taught Amelia Earhart's also from from Ames here, grew up here and learned to fly. And so we're going to talk a lot about Banning and his contributions to the aviation of the nation. And we're actually going to have a, his Miss Ames playing kind of a scaled version hanging from the ceiling in there. So it's going cool. to be a lot of fun. We're excited to show off all these great photos and, and the, his story.
1: Well, Alex, thank you so much for sharing the story with us today.
0: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Alex Pfeiffer is Exhibits Manager with Ames History Museum. We've been talking about James Herman Banning. He was one of the first black men to fly an airplane across the country in 1932, along with his co pilot. Thomas Cox Allen. He was the first black man to officially get a pilot's license in the United States, and he lived in Ames, Iowa for 10 years of his life. On Banning's birthday, November 5th, the Ames Public Library and the Ames Historical Museum will be showing a recording of the play about his life. It's called On Golden Wings, The Greatest Story Never Told. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.